0: Boom. We're live. Paul, thank you for joining me. I've been uh, looking forward to this for quite some time.
1: It's good to be here.
0: So um, just as a bit of backstory, I have been involved in, in health and wellness and fitness my entire life. Well, from 14 years old. I, I wanted a, a um, camping lighter when I was a kid. So I was a fat kid, ate lots of cookies and sour candies and that, that kind of story. And uh, there was this cool butane camping lighter at the sports store that I wanted one time when I was 14 years old and it was 50 bucks. And so I I offered a bet to my dad. I said, I think he might've offered to me, he said, no junk food for a month and I'll get you the lighter. And 50 bucks when you're 12 or 14, you know, it's a decent amount of money. So I took the bet and I was 200 pounds at the time. And I lost 15 pounds and thought, well, this is pretty cool. And then I did it for another month and lost another 15 pounds. And from that point on, I forgot the lighter and was just into health and fitness and, you know, various uh, forms of exercise since then. But uh, along that journey, um, you try, you end up trying lots of different diets, right? And I know that's, you, you, you've got some stories to tell there as well. Because uh, you got to find what works for you ultimately. And I think that's what the journey most of us are on when we're dedicated to this stuff. And I came across a carnivore diet a number of years ago, first got exposure to it uh, from Dr. Sean Barker, who was on, or Baker, uh, on the Joe Rogan Experience podcast. And I think like many people, it was kind of like an affront to us because like I can get over a lot of dogma, but that one, th- you know, one of the most drilled down was eat your vegetables, right? No matter what the diet, what else is in the diet, the veggies are the good part. So make sure they're in there somehow. And uh, it was, it was uh, surprising to hear that you could construct a diet exclusively on animal products. And then there were some high-profile examples like Jordan Peterson and Michaela Peterson who had been advocating a diet like this and it helped them through some of their autoimmune conditions, uh, things that are related to inflammation like depression and, and other illnesses. And then I came across you uh, a, a little while later. And uh, what I really appreciate about your approach is you get into the nitty gritty, you get into the nuance, you pull on a ton of knowledge from you know a lot of different areas to make a really strong case for this diet. So uh, I know that was a very long, uh, long intro, but uh, maybe we should start with just a little bit of your background, how you came to be known as the carnivore MD and the author of The Carnivore Code, which I have here in front of me, and what is the carnivore diet?
1: Yeah, thanks. Thanks for those kind words. I I've always thought it was a fascinating question. I've been asking that question about what humans are supposed to eat for many years and have gone through my own numerous iterations of it. I had vegan diet when I was, you know, in my early 30s, late 20s as a physician assistant and I lost 25 to 30 pounds of lean muscle mass and had the worst gas of my life and pooped four times a day and it was horrible. It was really hard to be a human. Um, And I was very, very skinny and didn't feel good. But I, at the time, was concerned about cooking meat or maybe meat isn't good for humans and quickly realized that 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 was not the way humans were supposed to eat and heard the ideas of Jeff Bland and others kind of talking about this genetic book of life and what's really written in our genes. It made a lot of sense to me. And I think that that's the way that I've framed the discussion for the the last 20 years within my own mind, is what the heck have humans been doing for the last 400 million years, or excuse me, four million years, and how does that shape what our bodies are expecting now? What are our genetics expecting us to be eating? And are we thinking about things properly? 2020 is a funny time, but I think most people listening to this will realize that there's a lot that we should be questioning. There's a lot that we should be questioning, and I love questioning dogma, I love questioning the status quo, And as I started to look differently at the paradigm of vegetables and meat and their relative importance and their relative nutrient quality or density or different nutrients, things started to look a little differently to me, which was really kind of a fun rabbit hole to fall down. After I stopped being a vegan, I went to paleo. Like I said, I was a a physician assistant working in cardiology. I quickly realized within that medical role that I was going to have to go back to medical school because I hated it. And what I hated was just that mainstream medicine was symptom-focused and pharmaceutical-based. And I didn't want to work that way. It was just boring and it wasn't satisfying to just know which drug to give. I didn't want to be a, an algorithmic thinker. I've never been interested in in that kind of pedantic medicine. So it's it's been a fun journey since then. I went back to medical school at the University of Arizona and then residency at the University of Washington and motivated in my own dietary changes by my issues, my eczema and asthma. The asthma was more of a problem when I was a kid, but eczema has been something that I have dealt with and carried for the majority of my adult life. When I was in medical school, I did a lot of jujitsu and had horrible eczema on my knees and elbows. It would get infected. I became septic, you know, at times and needed antibiotics. And it was really bad. Even in residency, as I was trying to iterate around a paleo diet, which starts to ask questions of what humans are programmed to eat, I had bad eczema on my back and it spread throughout my whole chest and arms. And at one point, almost had head to toe eczema after a pretty bad it reaction. So I clearly wasn't I didn't have it figured out. I didn't have it figured out. I didn't have the idea yet crystallized in my mind of how plants and animals were were affecting my own biology, but I kept trying to think about it. So I similarly heard Jordan Peterson on Joe Rogan and thought that's really interesting. I've always been fascinated and at that point I was toward the end of my residency in autoimmune disease and and really I've really been fascinated by a unifying theory and been in search of of something, I've always imagined that medicine and disease are much more simple than we're making it out. To be sure, there are zebras, we would call them in Western medicine. There are very rare genetic mutations or polymorphisms that cause people to have genetic issues that lead to sometimes inescapable or pretty bad diseases. But that's really, in my opinion, less than 1% of the chronic disease we see in humans. The overwhelming majority of what we see is lifestyle-related, and most physicians would agree on that, though in medical school, you would not really told that, mm-hmm. because if we were told that 99% of the disease that we are treating is lifestyle-related, medical students would revolt and say, how can you not tell us how to treat lifestyle diseases if that's 99% of what we do? Instead, we're just given the algorithms, more and more complex algorithms for newer and sexier drugs, which come out every few years. It's just, it's the most broken system I've seen in my life it's it's really just abysmally saddening so you end up in this position where you don't really you don't really know where to go as a medical student you don't really know where to go as a doctor you're seeing patients they're clearly sick and and I was just thinking this is all related to lifestyle this is all malleable this is all related to diet and of course lifestyle is more than diet it's exercise it's stress, it's sleep, it's light, it's toxins but even within that realm of lifestyle, I believe, that food is, is the biggest lever. It's not the only lever, but it's the biggest lever. We are literally putting in kilogram quantities of this into our bodies. We're putting in kilogram quantities of food, and we know that milligram quantities of drugs can change our physiology. So we're taking like 100 to 1,000 or 10,000 times more molecules in our food than, than medications that can totally change our heart rate or our blood pressure or kill us or affect the course of our our life massively. So it's a powerful lever. It's a powerful lever. It's literally going into us and becoming us. It's becoming us. It's nourishing us. So that's been my fascination is is what is this, what is the, the, the most congruent diet for humans? What is a species-appropriate diet? Is there a species-appropriate diet? And is the lack of a species-appropriate diet, is the lack of us eating a species-appropriate diet really to blame? Could we call that the unifying... Theory is that the center is that the one uniting node among all these chronic diseases, and I think it's really fascinating because the the journey for the last few years has been amazing. I get emails every day, so I recently started this company called Hardened Soil. We do desiccated organ supplements, and I get emails every day from people telling me that they've cured, quote unquote, reversed diseases that they've been told their whole life were incurable: lupus, Sjogren's, autoimmune thyroiditis, eczema, like me depression, anxiety, bipolar, the list goes on and on with an animal-based diet, and we'll talk about what that is, eating nose to tail, getting the organs, and you think, wow, this is a lot of N equals ones. We should study this because Western medicine doesn't understand this, and even outside of carnivore, fascinatingly, there are people finding improvements in their health when they make other dietary changes. I'm super interested in what happens to people who go on vegan diets and find improvements in their health. I think there's a lot of commonalities there that we can draw from. But I, I've just came to the place where I thought, I'm not healthy, I have an eczema that's really bothering me, it's preventing me from surfing and doing things I want to do, I'm still eating plants, this makes sense, I'm gonna completely eliminate all plants, even though I had been told the same thing and deep within my psyche was a similar notion that it was guarded dogma, that that plants are what humans should eat and plants are eat your vegetables. But I let them go, um, I took me a little while to kind of play around with my diet. Always had organs in there. Within a few weeks, my eczema was gone. It's never come back. I've been doing this for more than two years now. And surprisingly, psychologically, I felt better. I didn't really think I was depressed or anxious, but my mental clarity improved. I had more emotional stability. Things were different. I felt differently without plants, and I thought, this is interesting. And at the beginning of my carnivore experiment, which turned into this two-year rabbit hole, I was doing it with honey because I was thinking, I don't wanna do, I don't wanna go into ketosis right now. I wanna be non-keto, I wanna get some carbohydrates in my diet. So I had honey and I still felt something differently mentally. It was still an interesting experience. Mm-hmm. Because people might say, oh, the ketosis could affect mental clarity, and it certainly can, but I don't really think I was in ketosis much of the time in terms of my N of one test tube. The most likely variable to me seemed to be that I had removed plants and increased my consumption of meat and organs in my diet. And the results were striking. And that's the beginning of the story. And I got so interested in the, uh, in the details and thinking, what about plant toxins? What are these plant toxins? And why are meats so, in, so vilified? Is this for real? And then you just go down rabbit hole after rabbit hole. And this is such an interesting notion because it challenges basically every dogmatically held idea within mainstream nutrition. You know, meat is good, vegetables are bad, LDL cholesterol, everything. Everything is on the chopping block. And that's why the journey's been super fun because in order to share my ideas, I've had to really defend um, many aspects. The the cholesterol aspect, the plant aspect, the gut aspect, microbiome, fiber, the list goes on and on. So it's been an incredible journey.
0: Yeah, well, that's. I think that's probably... uh in addition to, you know, your your disposition, who you are as a person that led you here is probably why you are so good at that recall and bringing all these disparate pieces of the puzzle together, because you're putting forth a theory, a, a, you know, a, a proposition that is like, it can't that a lot of people will think can't possibly be true, you know, and you'll probably get a lot of pushback from people in the medical community, diet and fitness and health and lifestyle community, all those people, because it's so kind of, so kind of shocking, right? And to your point about, you know, how this makes you feel in the N equals one, a lot of people um, don't know what it feels like to feel really good. They kind of don't know what is available to them in terms of energy, vitality, you know, happiness, joy, like kind of just that joie de vivre, like sense of being alive. Like uh, uh, in many people, I think they discount the degree to which their lifestyle and diet choices inhibit that. And what's what's interesting is when people start manipulating their diet they start to figure that out but as you said sometimes just making any change can have can net a positive result because you're moving away from something that was let's say a worse uh, routine or paradigm into something better but I think the important thing is not to stop there and I guess that's what happened with you right like okay you get some resolution you feel a bit better but you wonder like what lies beyond like what what if I keep digging down the rabbit hole and um, you know, the, a big part of the, the first section of the book or probably the largest portion of the book is the case you make against vegetables. You know, so when I told some people I'm going to be talking to you today, they were like, mate, come on. You know, like you, you can't just eat meat all the time, right? Right? And I was like, well, you know, according to the book and according to what Paul often says. Um, so I know that's like a, you know, a, a lot. But if you could just break into some of the main points about why the vegetable myth is, is a myth.
1: If you think about this from the perspective of nutritional adequacy and nutritional density, that's an interesting angle to take. You can also think about it from the perspective of plants and then you can think about it from the perspective of people being in nature and our ancestors. So we'll just start with the anthropologic perspective first and then we'll go through the other two. But a lot of people who think that way haven't spent much time in nature. They haven't spent much time in the wilderness. If you spend much time in the wilderness, depending on the latitude, what you quickly realize is that most plants will just make you vomit, have instant diarrhea, give you a horrible stomach ache, and there's not a whole lot that's that edible that's green out there. But we go to the grocery store, and we, we see this, this, this panoply, this cornucopia, of, of fruits and vegetables, and they're all super colorful, and, and kale has the best publicist in the world, and we've been, you know, we've been told it's so good for us, and broccoli is, is deeply ingrained in the psyche, and we just think, ah, oh, of course, everything is edible, but, but if you go in the wilderness, pretty much no matter what latitude of the, of the earth you are in, whether it's the northern or the southern hemisphere, it doesn't look like a grocery store. You can't just swoop down. And take a handful of plants and expect to thrive. You won't do that. You will. You will quickly, basically, be puking your guts out and crapping everywhere. It'll be horrible. Um, I've done it. Believe me. When I was a vegan, I had this. This. Curious habit of just picking dandelions everywhere, and they're some of the more edible plants, but they're super toxic. They have tons of defense chemicals, but you know dandelion greens are sold in grocery stores. You can pay three to four dollars for a head of dandelion greens. So when I was out running as a malnourished vegan, I would swoop down and grab a handful of of dandelion greens, and I don't know why I was surprised when my stomach always hurt and I had horrible gas, and I really wasn't getting much faster, and I was just losing muscle mass upon muscle mass. So if you look. In any ecosystem, there's not a lot of edible plants. I think I saw a statistic that only 20% of plants won't kill you immediately. There's only 20% of plants that are edible. But any animal that runs away from you is basically edible, extremely nutrient-rich, and incredibly bioavailable source of most of the nutrients that humans need to thrive. Mm-hmm. Now, there are, of course, really idiosyncratic exceptions, a puffer fish, liver, or whatever, you know, these crazy, the, the poisonous frog in the Amazon. 99.9% of animals that run away from you are edible and nutritious. And then you think about our ancestors. And humans have been around for, most people would say, 4 million years, evolving from Australopithecus to Homo habilis, Homo erectus, Homo heidelbergensis, Neanderthals and Homo sapiens kind of splitting lineages. And it's it's pretty hard. If you've ever done a plant-based diet or thought about eating plants, it's almost impossible to get all the nutrients you need. In fact, I would argue it's entirely not possible to do that. There are so many nutrients that are uniquely found in animal foods. You cannot get all of the nutrients you need in plants. But think about how complex it would have been for our ancestors to construct a diet that was entirely, or even the majority of which was based on plants, in terms of nutrient adequacy. It's, inc- it's like freaking multivariable calculus. Where do you get your zinc? Where do you get your calcium? Where do you get your molybdenum? Where do you get your selenium? Where do you get your iron? Where do you get, you know et cetera. Where do you get your thiamine? Where do you get your riboflavin? Where do you get your B6? Where do you get your pantothenic acid? It's impossible. You cannot do it. You just cannot do it. But if you draw back your bow, or pull your spear, or your atlatl, and you kill an animal, a deer, a bison, an elk, a woolly mammoth, and you eat that animal from nose to tail, meaning you eat the muscle meat, you eat the tendons, you eat the bone marrow, you eat the liver, you might eat the stomach, you might eat the spleen, you will get every single nutrient that a human needs to thrive. And it's all in one place. It's all contained in that one place because that animal, that animal's biology looks almost essentially like a human's biology. They run a Krebs cycle like us. They have signaling molecules like us. They use B vitamins in a similar way. Some of them are slightly different, but they have the basic underlying biochemistry you know a liver in a in a cow is pretty similar to human liver it's not entirely equivalent but it's pretty similar it's full of a lot of the same nutrients that we use as humans and so here you have this incredible <clears throat> discordance this massive inequality between nutrient density nutrient adequacy and nutrient bioavailability between plants and animals most plants are just frankly toxic your ancestors can't eat them you kill an animal you get everything you need it's right there now what people often will come back with is, but of course our ancestors ate plants. And I think, yeah, they probably did from time to time. But what was their intention when they were eating plants? Were they eating plants to to, to get a unique nutrient? I don't think so. And you see this in indigenous cultures. You see this in hunter-gatherer tribes that are still living. Most of them are eating plants as fallback foods. They're survival foods. Mm. You don't always have a successful hunt. You don't always get a woolly mammoth. They're extinct today after this recent megafaunal extinction in the last 20,000 years on this planet, apparently, you don't always get a huge animal. You don't always get an animal in general and you still need calories. So if you can get a tuber that's less toxic and our ancestors and hunter-gatherer tribes understand the toxicity of plants, understand they exist on a spectrum. If you can get something that's less toxic, you might eat that, but it's a survival food. It's a fallback food. To make it the centerpiece of your diet neglects this incredible bounty that is found in animals and within these tribes, hunter-gatherers, Hadza, Ikung, San, whatever, Yanomono, Kawimeno in the Amazon, they're seeking animals preferentially. If they get a big kill, they will eat that exclusively at the exclusion of plants for some amount of time. And so they're, the hierarchy from an indigenous culture perspective is very clear. And then when you kind of put that into the context or combine that with these notions of where you get certain vitamins and minerals, it becomes even more clear. So When people say you cannot live on meat, I say, well, you absolutely can. There are many people who are doing it right now and thriving. I don't think many people understand the concept of eating nose to tail, and, but you know, technically organs are meat, so yes, you can live on meat and organs, but you certainly can live on animal foods exclusively. Humans have absolutely no need for plants in their diet. If you come across a berry in the spring or some fruit, you're probably gonna eat that, absolutely. But you don't need that. Humans can do ketosis and low carb for a long amount of time. And if there's a non-toxic root around, you might eat that. But do you need it? No, there's nothing unique in those foods that makes humans any better. And we're getting into all these sort of teasers for things that I have to develop later in the book, which is what about polyphenols? What about plant nutrients? But first, we'll just talk about this concept, that the reverse is not true. So there are no nutrients in plants that you cannot get from animal foods. None. There's none. But the reverse is not true. There are many nutrients in animal foods that you cannot get in plants. Choline, carnitine, creatine, riboflavin, so many things like this. Taurine, anserine, B12, K2, the full spectrum of menaquinones. People always want to nitpick here and say, well, you can't get vitamin C in animal foods, but you absolutely can. I'm living proof of that. There's, There's, I believe, Totally biologically equivalent levels of vitamin C in animal foods. Talk about dogma, though. Your Tell gums, people that your gums
0: look pretty good too.
1: <laughs> I know I'm not bleeding out of my gums. I don't have petechiae, I promise my wounds heal. I often cut myself when I'm working out or hitting the punching bag. When I was surfing, I would cut myself on the board or on the fins, and my you know my wounds would heal just fine. I actually sliced a huge hole in my hand on my foil board. The propeller went through um, at the first metatarsal. And I, I almost lost a finger. And again, it's like Ouch. completely healed. You don't heal a cut like that without, <laughs> without adequate vitamin C, you guys. Anyway, but you get the idea. There's, there's an inequality here, but there are many things that you cannot get in plants that are present in animals. So that, that just in and of itself says, humans must eat animals to thrive. That is an incontrovertible statement. You cannot really argue with that. And then the question becomes, why would we eat plants? Well, if you want to eat them for color, texture, variety, sure, that's fine, that's entertainment. But from a nutritional perspective, why would we eat plants? And the further and further I went down this rabbit hole, the more I realized we don't have to. Humans don't have to. If you're listening to this and you're thriving and eating plants, that's amazing. My goal is not to convince everyone to stop eating plants. My goal is to offer those who are not thriving, who are suffering with some autoimmune illness, psychiatric illness, whatever, libido, body composition, mood, sleep, a tool that hasn't been talked about because we've been so stuck within this myopic dogmatic framework we've got these dogma blinders on thinking i must eat plants the radical statement that i will make is that there are no nutrients in plants that humans need to thrive absolutely none if you're getting them and you're doing great that's fine if you want to eat them from color variety texture great but if you're not thriving is it possible that some of these anti nutrients in plants are harming you so that's kind of a long a long soapbox but i'll just I'll just wrap it up with this one perspective as I talked about the anti-nutrients in plants. Think about things from a plant's perspective. You are rooted in the ground. You are rooted in the ground. You can't run away. A squirrel, a deer, a fish, a woolly mammoth, these can move away. They have defense mechanisms. What do plants use for defense? The majority use chemicals called phytoalexins. They use plant defense chemicals. They use chemicals they have specifically evolved in their 450 million years of coevolution with insects, animals, fungi, to dissuade those life forms from eating them for breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snacks in between. Now, occasionally, plants will use spikes. We're familiar with cacti or things like this, roses, but the majority of plants use chemical defenses. They use digestive enzyme inhibitors. They use other chemicals that are meant to interfere with our biology, like isothiocyanates. They're pretty crafty. Because the ones that have evolved these chemicals have thrived. And there's so many examples of these delicate interplays between animals and plants within ecosystems biology. When animals overconsume plants, plants usually develop more toxins. They kind of push back against the animals. The animal populations decline. There's a delicate balance. Animals that are herbivorous or eat the majority of their diet from plants also understand which plants they can consume and in what amounts. They don't just go crazy and only consume one plant because they realize if they consume too much of any one plant, they will get sick because they will overload their body's ability to detoxify that toxin. There are unique toxins in every plant. So if you think about it from a plant's perspective, a plant doesn't want you or I eating its stem or its leaf or its seed. It especially doesn't want you eating its seed because that's its baby. But we don't think about it in this way all the time and realize that seeds actually are nuts, grains, and legumes, and seeds. So those are all plant babies, and those are the most highly defended parts of plants. There's lots of evidence for this, lectins, oxalates, phytase, digestive enzyme inhibitors, et cetera. So the roots are below ground. Some plants have a lot of toxins in their roots, other plants have less. A lot of plants that we eat today have been hybridized, so they were toxic, and we've made them less toxic. But the plant's intentions are clear, and many of the toxins remain in lower amounts. But from the perspective of plants, they're just not happy about you eating them. Now, their fruit is kind of a different perspective, and I'll, we can talk about that as well. But stems, leaves, a lot of roots and seeds, plants don't want these to get eaten. Animals don't want to get eaten either, but they're going to run away from you or bite you or kick you or gore you or use an antler or something to defend themselves. Plants right. are not in the same situation.
0: Right. Their defense is fight or flight, and you got to overcome that if you want to eat them, right? Versus exactly. the plant, they got a tricky little thing that's going to... Make you not want to eat too much of them, right? Or, or, or have a deleterious effect on you if you do.
1: Yeah, give you a stomach ache, affect your hormones, affect your thyroid, make you infertile, negatively affect the persistence of your species if you overconsume that plant. So, faced with that sort of a, a landscape, why do we need vegetables?
0: Well, we might. We, as well. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah,
1: basically for survival food. Right. And then also in indigenous cultures. There is some evidence, or you can see this in their patterns also, that when they consume plants, they'll often ferment them. We've developed so many ways to detoxify plants as humans over the last four million years. Soaking, sprouting, fermentation, cooking. Now we can do pressure cooking. We have to go to great lengths to detoxify these things. It's just, it's crazy to me to think. When I realized that, I thought, wow. Like, I hope people understand how how hard you have to work to make these things less toxic. It's not easy. You don't have to do that with animals. You throw it on the fire. You can even eat it raw. You don't have to do anything to detoxify an animal. And it's important to note that animals do not have these same defense mechanisms at all. They don't have these toxic compounds in them, generally speaking. Rare occasions, sure, but 99.9%, none of these.
0: Right. Right. Well, I, I, why don't we why don't we break into the fruit part right now? Because I was going to ask you about that, and it's a, it's I know it's one that a lot of people, when they're thinking about maybe adopting such a diet, they would hate to leave behind. And just to find, you know, you brought up uh, fermented foods like sauerkraut and kimchi and and, and things like that. It, interesting, because and and I think we should also delve into kind of today's quote unquote health uh, approach to health landscape because there's so much out there that glorifies. Uh, different vegetables and different uh, preparations of vegetables and in your book you mentioned that if you're eating uh, a nose to tail carnivore diet with properly sourced animals so you know not factory farmed you know pasture raised grass fed etc then your microbiome your gut biome is probably going to be as it should and introducing things, fermented vegetables are not going to have a, a, a you know a beneficial effect on top of that. So it's it's it, as you say, it was just uh, ancient people's attempt to make these things more you know palatable and 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 less uh, destructive in their body, but not necessarily turn them into a quote unquote superfood, right?
1: Uh, yes, I agree with you completely there. And there are so many different aspects there that we could go down. Um, I don't think that lacto fermentations, whether it's sauerkraut or kimchi or whatever, are magical. Um, Generally speaking, lactobacillus is pervasive and ubiquitous in the environment. And I think most of us don't need more of it. Uh, The microbiome is is a web, it's an ecosystem. And just like there are multiple ecosystems on the planet, there are multiple thriving ecosystems in people's guts. Some people are able to create an ecosystem based on plant fiber that works pretty well. Plant fiber doesn't really make my gut feel very good. Uh, but what's, what's frustrating for me, and I will challenge people not to be myopic here, is that most within the health space don't understand that there are other versions of a, quote, healthy gut. And it's kind of like what I said earlier. If you are thriving from a GI perspective and you poop daily and it's not hard to pass, and you don't have gas, and your stomach doesn't hurt after meals, you don't have bloating, don't even worry about your microbiome because your microbiome is probably just fine. Uh, The microbiome we have when we're healthy is a healthy microbiome, in my opinion. And we have tried to reverse engineer this and say, we know which microbiota, we know which organisms are healthy. And that's, that's kind of BS. We don't know what organisms we need. We don't know that we absolutely need lactobacillus or bifidobacteria to occupy a certain niche within the microbiome, the ecosystem there for a healthy gut. That's that's just fallacy. That's, that's people creating a construct that isn't fleshed out yet. You can see this in hunter-gatherer tribes that there are many of them, like the Hadza, that don't even have bifidobacteria. They don't even have bifidobacteria. So why do we need bifidobacteria to have a healthy gut? Why do we need lactobacillus? I mean, most people do and there are better outcomes, but we have to realize that the GI microbiome studies are in their infancy Mm -hmm. and it's okay for your gut to look different than quote a plant-based or a plant fiber-based microbiome. If you don't have symptoms and then people will come back and say, well, what about cancer? And we can get into all those things. There's really no evidence that red meat causes cancer down, down, down that rabbit hole. (laughs) We go if we want, but yeah, I just, I, you brought that up with regard to the microbiome. So I thought I'd add that and then I'll circle back to fruit now. Yeah. When you think about fruit, plants want you to eat their fruit, generally speaking. They're not going to put toxins in there. Think like a plant. and
0: They're going to make about, it super enticing, and they're going to do whatever they need to do to make sure you eat it, which is probably not in your best interest, but it's in theirs, right?
1: Well, it's interesting because this is one of the, the, the lines of thought that I've expanded on since I read the book. Um, so... If you're out in the wilderness, if we go back to actually trying to understand how our ancestors might have lived, or spending time in the wilderness today, or being with hunter-gatherer tribes, and you're around fruit, it's bright. I was recently hiking in Montana, and there were blueberries, there were huckleberries, and thingleberries, and, and there's not a lot of things that are red or blue, and your eyes immediately go to that. People have hypothesized that's one of the reasons we have color vision. So I think that in the book, I took the stance toward fruit that it can be overeaten and I certainly think it can. And I think that for most people they will know when they've overeaten fruit. But I really can't imagine that our ancestors would have bypassed a thicket of blackberries or raspberries or blueberries in nature. I think we would have we would have had these things from time to time. Mm-hmm. And so it it bothers me a little bit that there's so much fructophobia today. There's so much fear of fructose, and I think it's not founded. If you look at the studies with fructose, when it's replacing glucose in the diet on an isocaloric basis, there's no evidence for weight gain, blood pressure change, or increasing uric acid in humans. So, so much of the literature on fructose is based on hypercaloric studies. If you overfeed people with anything, they will gain weight and have negative outcomes. It's like your story. If you're eating junk food, then you can eat too many calories. If you're eating excess calories of mostly anything, uh, certainly of fat or of carbohydrates as sugar, you're going to gain weight. When you gain weight, metabolically, things are going to go downhill for you. But I'm just not convinced that fruit in moderate quantities on a seasonal basis is horrible for people. I think it's totally reasonable, totally evolutionarily really consistent. And for some people, really makes the diet much more doable.
0: Yeah. And
1: as you'll see in, in chapter 12 in the book, I talked about... Sort of this idea of tiers of the carnivore diet. I'm not dogmatic about animal-based diets. I actually am very interested now in constructing what I would can say is an animal-based diet, a carnivore-ish diet that includes the least toxic plant foods, rather than just an entirely meat-based diet. We can talk about that in a moment. But I do think it's important for people to realize, on the flip side, that if you have diabetes, if you have metabolic dysfunction, and it's pre-existing, then elimination of carbohydrates can be very helpful. But I do not believe, based on the evidence that I have seen to this point, and I've done lots of podcasts on my podcast, which is Fundamental Health, about this, Great show. that that carbohydrates cause metabolic dysfunction, a.k.a. insulin resistance, de novo, in healthy individuals. I think something else starts it. I think it's linoleic acid. I think it's excess polyunsaturated fats. Another rabbit hole we can go down. So if someone is listening to this and you have diabetes, you have obesity, you have metabolic syndrome, lowering the carbohydrates, absolutely helpful. Make sure you lower the polyunsaturated fats as well. In metabolically healthy individuals, people that are already thriving and just looking to optimize who are not obese, who don't have diabetes, I think it's totally reasonable to include the least toxic plant foods that may have carbohydrates. That's not the end of the world, and I do not believe it will lead to diabetes. From a plant perspective, that is often fruit. So seasonally, I think it's reasonable to humans to eat fruit, and I don't like to be dogmatic about that. But there's a little nuance there that's important to unpack for people,
0: sure, but if we're ter- if we're talking about uh, ideal as far as your research and your own experience and the experience of your patients and people that have you know sent you their their case studies and stuff like that, uh, do you still think an exclusively animal based diet is optimal for for the average or not the average person, but you know not considering uh, boredom of the diet or wanting to have some sweets or anything just like you tell me what to put in my body so that I am as optimized as possible do you think it's most likely that that's an all you know nose-to-dale carnivore diet or does that is there some optimization for including something like blueberries and by the way uh, I, I totally agree I was out hiking the other day and I had a shitload of uh, fresh blueberries and they were amazing did you indulge
1: I did. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know what? This is another thing. So what's interesting about writing a book is you write a book. And then within the following few months, you think, ah, there's more to write. So I'm writing a cookbook now. And the cookbook will be out late next year in a little bit. And, you know, it's been fun to kind of like expand on the ideas. So my goals with this movement are really threefold to help people understand. Number one, that animal meat and organs are the ideal food for humans, and they should form the centerpiece of the diet, that they are the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet, they're the most bioavailable, and they are really incorrectly vilified for the last 70 years based on bad science. They must be part of a diet for it to be healthy. Number two, that plants exist on a toxicity spectrum. I think that for the majority of people, you don't need to cut out all the plants. You just I want people to understand what the most toxic and the least toxic plant foods are. And the little caveat there, the asterisk is that I think for most people, just like our ancestors would have, some seasonal inclusion of carbohydrates, either carnivore carbohydrates like honey or fruit-based carbohydrates or less toxic root-based carbohydrates is beneficial. I think that exclusive zero-carb, quote-unquote, ketogenic diets long-term fail, and they fail because our biology doesn't want to be in ketosis all the time. I think it's very helpful for us to have that cycling, to deplete the glycogen in the liver, to turn on the AMP kinase pathways, to flip our biology back and forth, but to not do one or the other exclusively. And I think that historically, within Western culture, what we've done is gone way too far to the side of carbosis. You know, all carbs, all the time. 60% of your diet is carbs. You're eating six times a day. You're always hungry. You're eating at eight o'clock at night. You're eating at six o'clock in the morning. You probably never deplete liver glycogen. Most people probably never see a ketone in their bloodstream for the first 25 years of their life. Well, that's not true because most infants and toddlers see ketones. But once, once they get to be five years old and they're eating candy and stuff, most kids probably never see a ketone in their body. Now, I don't, I, I don't think that's a good thing. I think we should definitely get to the point where we're doing some fat-based metabolism, quote unquote, and we should be able to burn fat. That's, I think, why the ketogenic movement was so popular. But I do fear that within that movement, there is overly dogmatic thinking and there's overly uh, zealous demonification, criminalization of carbohydrates. Remember, I don't think carbs cause the problem in the first place. When the fire is started by excess fat cells that are expanding due to linoleic acid, yeah, carbohydrate intolerance develops at a biochemical level. But I don't think carbs cause the problem. So I think including some carbohydrates in your diet on a cyclic basis, is probably optimal for most humans. I think we would have done it. I don't think we would have made it a centerpiece of our diet, but I think it's valuable for humans to include that from time to time. Now, one of the things I experimented with while I was wearing a continuous glucose monitor from this company, NutriSense, was uh, including honey. I was fascinated by honey. People think, oh honey, it's sugar, you can't do that. But if you look at the literature, it's used to treat gingivitis, periodontal disease, you know, oral mucositis, candida of the mouth, It's an interesting compound. So I really enjoyed moderate amounts of raw organic honey. I know the Hadza love this stuff. It's available seasonally, so I think there's some interesting possibilities of seasonal inclusion of more complex versus simple carbohydrates. But I do think that if I were gonna design the ideal diet for someone who was metabolically healthy, right, so I I know that you corrected and said there's no real normal within humans, I would include cyclic carbohydrates, either as honey or fruit or squash or complex carbs. I think these are less toxic sources of carbohydrates because they're all fruit. People may not realize that squash is a fruit, avocado is a fruit. These are, I think these are the least toxic sources of humans. So again, I'm not dogmatic here. I think that this is what our ancestors would have done. They would have had less toxic sources of carbs than they could get them, but they always ate nose to tail as well. And so we've talked about this a little bit, but I'll emphasize it now that there is not a culture on the planet. If you go to live with the Hadza, I have a number of friends who've spent years with them, and I want to go next year and actually hang out with them, or the San, or the Ikung, or whoever. They all eat nose to tail. Animals in the wild eat nose to tail. They go for the liver first. They go for the organs first. And so I believe that to just focus on making a diet out of meat and bacon and eggs is going to leave you nutritionally bereft it's going to leave us with nutrient inadequacies that's what everybody's worried about like how are you going to get your this mineral or nutrient but once you start adding in things like liver or heart or you get more exotic and you do spleen or pancreas or thymus or the intestines like the stomach you really start to see some unique nutrients come into play and that's that's been a fun thing for me throughout the journey i've always eaten nose to tail throughout my carnivore experience. And it was spurred on because I have an MTHFR polymorphism. So I have methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase polymorphism, 677C to T, and my homocysteine was high. And the reason my homocysteine was high was because I wasn't getting enough folate or enough riboflavin. And I realized that the way to get riboflavin is to eat liver and heart. There's a moderate amount in muscle meat, but it's pretty hard to get enough if you're just eating muscle meat. But when I eat liver and heart regularly, I can my homocysteine is within normal, it's below seven usually. But if I don't eat enough riboflavin or folate, you have to get both, my homocysteine will go 11, 12, 13. So this is a little esoteric for people, but it was a reminder to me, hey, there are unique nutrients in organs. So for a lot of people, getting these organs is impossible, which is why we do what we do at Heart and Soil, we make the desiccated organs. But I think no matter how you get it, whether it's desiccated organs, or fresh organs, getting animal meat and fat and organs nose to tail. It's just it's such a superhero cheat. It's like there's so many unique nutrients in there. If you think you feel good on an animal-based diet, put some organs in, put some bone broth in, put some you know bone marrow in there. Get some liver, get some intestines, and you will like just absolutely level up. The third piece of the equation, just not to neglect that, was just is mo- mostly the vegetable oil piece. And the fact that I really am concerned about excess linoleic acid in human diets. But yeah, in answer to your question, again, I'm not one that's short on words. Um, I think that for someone that is metabolically unhealthy, I would consider a lower carbohydrate diet. And then I think going full animal-based nose to tail is great. If the only way they're going to be able to do it is with you know some avocado or some squash occasionally or some less toxic plant foods, that's great. I just want them to get as close as possible. That's why I want to make the diet inclusive. But I do think animal-based nose to tail, which is something that I did for a year and a half on the carnivore diet, works great for most people. If you're metabolically unhealthy, you have to heal from that. If you're crushing it already and you're, your glucose looks good, if you've worn a CGM and you wanna include carbs on a cyclic basis or you're a high-level athlete, you can do it. Just be aware of the toxicity spectrum of those.
0: Right, and so I wanna break into the organ aspect of things, but just to put a cherry on on the top of this one, in the book you you reference the diet in terms of tiers, right? Just to kinda allow people to have different tiers to access the diet without being exclusive and saying, well, I can't possibly take on that much. Uh, You are living your radical life in tier five. Uh, I think the, the tone has changed a little bit around honey and fruit since yeah. you, you published the book, it seems. So in Tier 5, what does Paul's day look like in terms of what carbohydrates are included and when right now?
1: So, yeah, so I was living in San Diego, and after a year and a half of no carbohydrates, I was getting. I was going to the climbing gym, and I would try to point my foot onto a hold, and my calf would cramp no matter how much sodium, no matter how much magnesium I ate no matter how much potassium. I started to get some palpitations, and I felt a little cold. And I thought, all right, (laughs) I'm gonna incorporate some carbohydrates back and kind of experiment with this. So I started with honey. Like I said, I was wearing a continuous glucose monitor. I included some fruit occasionally. I included squash back in. I found that the lower fiber carbohydrates felt better in my gut. I like the way fruit felt occasionally. I like the way honey felt. And I did not like the way squash felt. It felt really distended and full, and it was difficult to get enough meat and organs in with squash in my diet. But some people may feel better with that. Right. So for the last few months, I've been including carbohydrates most days, not every day, but most days. I've worn a CGM a couple more times. There's a whole CGM, Continuous Glucose Monitor podcast on my show after doing honey every day for probably two to three months that clearly shows that 100 to 150 grams of carbohydrates as honey is not gonna make you insulin resistant. I stayed very insulin sensitive. I recently checked my fasting insulin. It was less than three micro IU per ml. My C-peptide was very low. So I'll vary my carbohydrate sources and I'll do some combination of seasonal fruit if I can get it and raw organic honey, if I can get it locally, these kind of things. Those are my main go-tos. I think in the winter, I may try and shift toward more of a winter carbohydrate. It's something I've been thinking about, like would something like squash, again, be more useful or less of a sugar-based carbohydrate in the winter. But regardless, I think that my results and the results of many others show that you can eat simple sugar carbohydrates and stay very insulin sensitive. Again, there's Way more nuance there that gets lost in the dogma of people saying honey is going to give you cavities, it's going to make you sick. It really doesn't, right? <laughs> um, there are hunter gatherer tribes in Africa, I believe it's the Mbuti, they're a pygmy race that at times of the year uh, has more than 50 percent of their calories as honey, and the Hadza have 15 percent of their calories as honey, which is a significant amount. and The Hadza don't have metabolic syndrome, the Hadza don't have insulin resistance, the Hadza don't have diabetes, and the Hadza are not obese from honey. So there's a lot of nuance in the honey space. So I eat twice a day. I eat breakfast and a late lunch, and then I'll do time-restricted feeding every day because it just works for me. I don't like to eat close to when I'm going to sleep. I don't like to do that. Um, I would rather eat earlier in the evening and give my my body some time to adjust and not have melatonin and insulin kind of pushing against each other. As you'll know, if you've listened to my CGM podcast, humans are just physiologically, on a circadian basis, more insulin sensitive in the morning. If I eat the same amount of carbohydrates at breakfast and, quote, late lunch, my, my glucose spike will be higher in the evening. But with most of these carbohydrates I'm eating, the glucose spike is mild. Most of the time it'll not even go above 100 or 105. So I'll usually do two meals a day. They're similar meals. I'm a simple man. I've found what I like. Um, If I'm gonna have dinner with friends, I might do something more interesting, but usually it's stew meat, which is cheap, Uh, eight to $10 a pound, grass-fed, grass-finished, regenerative stew meat. I make bone broth. I'll blanch the stew meat in bone broth. I'll eat the bone broth with it twice a day. I'll eat some suet, so I'll eat some fat because I'm really fascinated by this molecule stearic acid and the effects of stearic acid on human biochemistry and mitochondria. So I'll eat some suet with it, and then I'll have organs. And in any given day, I'll have an assortment of organs, probably two to four ounces a day of um, total of liver, heart, kidney, spleen, pancreas, testicle if I've got it, thymus if I've got it. And if I can't fill those in, I'll take our supplements, which I take most days for the desiccated, the freeze-dried organs. So that's generally what I do. And then I'll do, I would say, maybe 50 to 60 grams of carbohydrates with each of those meals twice a day. And it's been fun to watch blood sugars with a continuous glucose monitor and see how I feel. But generally it does... It does help me feel a little better. the The cramping's gotten much better. I can go climbing now. You know, the palpitation stopped. I don't feel cold anymore. So it's like, okay, I think our ancestors probably had some carbohydrates seasonally at different times and um, you know, use that. I don't think they made that the center of their diet, right. but I think that it's an, an interesting adjunct to us when we can get it.
0: Um, a couple things on that. One, just quickly. I've seen photos from your Instagram before where you have a completely raw meat plate, you know, raw uh, muscle meat, raw egg yolks, what, you know, organ meat is it necessary. If you can stomach it, if you don't mind the texture and the flavor and whatever else of of raw meat, is it more beneficial than cooked meat? Uh, Is there any danger in eating raw meat? What's the, the thinking around that?
1: Oh, I don't do much of that anymore. So I will eat the organs raw. So, But the meat, no. So interestingly, I've just found that organs are the easiest to eat raw. They're frozen. I think they're pretty safe. Anytime the doctor part of me is thinking, oh, man, I'm recommending raw organs. Like, Well, everybody knows you can get sick from eating raw food no matter what you do. If you're worried about it, blanch it or cook it. But I found liver shooters to be the easiest way to eat liver. I just like raw liver the best. Um, I liver did shooters?
0: do a I, liver shooters.
1: Liver shooter is just raw liver in like a quarter size piece that you put in your mouth You just swallow it.
0: Okay,
1: yeah, you don't even have to chew it. Right. So, I had a couple months where I did exclusively raw meat, and I just found that it was hard to eat enough meat. Probably it's the fact that humans have been cooking meat for a million years that cooked meat tastes better to me. I'll mostly blanch my meat. I am interested in going down the rabbit hole further of polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons and heterocyclic amines. I think that there is a possibility that eating lots of charred and cooked meats and grilled and smoked meats could create some oxidative stress for humans. That's what we have phase one and phase two detoxification systems for. That's what we have the NRF2 system in the liver for. But I've always kind of liked to be the astronaut and gone out and explored and thought, well, what if I really minimize those? So I try to low temp cook most of my meat. Now you can do it raw if you want. I just, I would rather blanch it. Although I will do the organs raw, pretty darn safe if you're eating ruminants that from good sources that's previously frozen. And I've, I've never really had a problem um, right. with that. So, but I think, you know, people can do what they want. I don't think it's necessary to eat raw meat exclusively.
0: Right. So, um, I mentioned this when we first connected that a lot of people uh, somewhat perhaps strangely from the outside that are into Bitcoin are into uh, the carnivore diet as well. And we can break into that if we have time later, but there's, there's probably some more important things I want to make sure we get through. But uh, I think a lot of people by virtue of the fact that many people heard of it from uh, Jordan and Michaela and Sean, especially on, on Rogan's podcast, the first introduction to this diet, um and for simplicity's sake and because it's way you know it's way more enjoyable perhaps that a lot of people you know they may even have a strict carnivore diet but it's mainly steak water and salt um and that you know I, i'll be perfectly honest like i i, I don't have a, a, a i don't like organ meats and so that's to the you know that's pretty much mine i'll mix in some avocados some blueberries as we're, if we've been talking about um but for people that are taking that approach uh, is it? Would you say that including something like liver would be the one upgrade that you would include into that mix? You know, if if people can uh, if people can manage it. And the second question off the back of that, at the beginning of the book, you talk about the evolutionary um, changes that occurred, likely due to our eating meat, um, and changes to the size of our brain, changes to our height, changes to, to the density of our bones. And interestingly, which is another thing, hopefully we can we can touch on a bit how this started reversing during the advent of agriculture about you know ten thousand ish years ago. Um, so people started becoming shorter. There was more evidence of disease in their in their bones and things of that nature. But if organ meat was such an instrumental component of our diet how come so many people have an aversion to it? How come so many people don't like the way it tastes or feels in their mouth? Um, you know, because like a, a steak, I think it makes all, most people's, you know, most meat eaters, it makes their mouth water. They're like, oh my God, I can't wait to dig into this. Put a little salt on it and it's amazing. But with liver, it's kind of like, when I start integrating it, it's going to have to be a disciplined thing first until I can kind of trick myself into figuring out a way to enjoy it the right way. So uh, yeah, those two questions. I'd love to hear your thoughts.
1: So the first question was about if you were doing a meat-based carnivore diet, would you include liver as one organ? Yeah, I think liver would be the first organ that I would include. But I mean, this is the big reason that I made hardened soil. This is the big reason we do desiccated organ supplements. When you freeze dry these organs, you preserve the majority of the nutrients and most people can swallow a capsule. So the problem with liver is indigenous cultures don't just eat liver, they eat, they eat the brain, they eat the eyes, yeah. they they eat, and, and there are unique nutrients throughout the body. So, for instance, there are peptides, there are signaling molecules throughout the body that we're just beginning to learn about in humans. And so, look, you said this earlier, a lot of us don't even know how good we could feel. And I think that's one of the benefits of simplifying our diet, of doing elimination diets. And Doing things like that that give us a sense. Oh, this is my real baseline. So, it, it's very interesting to me to think about all the nutrients and organs that we don't even know about that we're just beginning to learn about. I was totally intrigued to learn about BPC one fifty seven in stomach and LL one LL thirty seven in bone marrow and liver associated uh, antimicrobial peptide in liver. And then there's splenin and splenopentin and tuftsin and spleen and All of these probably have unique effects in humans and can be beneficial for us. There's no culture that just eats the liver and throws it away and there's no cultures that don't eat any of the organs. So if you can't eat the organs, that's why we make desiccated organ supplements, check us out at Heart and Soil. I think these would be great for you guys, the capsules. If you can't eat the organs, do that. Do the fresh organs and start with liver but consider the other ones too. I mean, heart is like sacred in these cultures. And your second question is, about why do we find it aversive and i think it's mostly cultural conditioning i mean a lot of kids find a lot of things culturally you know aversive that we know are good for them right um, because they're not used to them uh, you know and i guess another... the counter
0: argument is if i went to one of those indigenous uh, you know communities uh, where this has been part of the staple part of their diet since they were born then they have no problem you know taking a big chunk of liver and shoving it back so
1: oh yeah absolutely and there are many people from you know, Asian descent or South American descent or Mediterranean descent who say, oh, I grew up eating liver. I love liver. I've, for every person that says I hate liver, I've heard another person who says I freaking love liver. And when I first started eating liver, I found it aversive. And over time I realized, oh, this is really good. And now I look forward to it every day. And so I, I do think there is some degree of cultural conditioning. They are strong foods but they're not, that, they're not really that hard to eat once you get used to them. And I think that if you go to these indigenous cultures, you would see the difference in terms of the way they regard them. The question or the, you know, the, the, other, the other thing I would mention is if you spend time in the wilderness, it'll make more sense, right? You just haven't been hungry enough. <laughs> and you know, It's like if you, are, if you are literally depending on this deer that you've killed for your nourishment, you are going to eat every single bit of that animal you're not going to leave anything. You're going to eat the balls, man. And, and you know, testicles are really delicious and nutritious. And so you're going to eat every piece of that animal. You're going to eat the tendons. You're going to eat every piece of that. I mean, indigenous cultures love the fat behind the eyes. So I went hunting in January and in Texas, in West Texas. And I was fortunate to, to take a deer with my bow. And when we were butchering the animal respectfully, I ate the fat behind the eyes. I mean, Arctic explorers talk about this eye fat, Eskimo talk about eye fat, it's like the, the texture of bread. But it sounds absolutely disgusting to humans until you try it and you're like, oh, it's not that bad at all. But if you are depending on that, you see every piece of that animal as a gift and it, it becomes a totally different perspective. And we tried to eat every bit of that animal we could on that trip. We tried the heart and the liver and the spleen, and the pancreas, we ate all of it because we wanted to be respectful and understand how it was. And so it's it's just this cultural conditioning just like we are culturally conditioned to believe that vegetables are a necessary part of the human diet, we're culturally conditioned to think livers gross. And look, uh-huh. if you think livers gross, that's why we make desiccated organ supplements. Like that that'll get you the <laughs> nutrition, but don't don't neglect that. And I'll tell you time and time again, I see in people who are heavy meat carnivores, their blood work doesn't look good. Their folate is low, their homocysteine is high, and they feel better when they add the organs. And you know, frankly, I I I find that thinking a little bit um juvenile within the carnivore community to say hey we're doing fine it's like well none of you will check your blood work and so it just doesn't make sense like we have to discard um basically everything we know about nutrition and i i understand the irony of that statement because we're we're challenging most of what we know about nutrition with a carnivore diet but to say that you can just live on meat alone Disregards most of what we know about nutrition in terms of nutrient adequacy. Where do you get your vitamin A? I mean, do, you, do we just not need retinoic acid in our diet? Like humans don't need retinoic acid? I'm pretty sure we do. Right. Um, where do you get your choline? You know, where do you get your riboflavin? Where do you get enough of these things? And meat is very nutritious, but adding in the organs really completes the picture. And I just think we're just not used to it because we live in 2020. And what's interesting about living in 2020 in the present day is we have amnesia for anything that's not within the last few decades. I mean, we do you know what life was like in 1880? Because I have no idea what life was like in 1880. <laughs> I wish, I kind of wish I were alive in 1840. Uh, I think I'd be happier then. But we don't have any sense of what it's like to be a hunter-gatherer unless we've been in the wilderness a lot.
0: Yeah, and that's actually something I wanted to to ask you. And I think to the point about, I think we everyone yearns for to be certain about something. And this is probably why, you know, especially in the health and and diet realm, you know, everyone's got, or not everyone, but like there's a lot of people that espouse the benefits of X diet, this protocol, that protocol, and and they believe in it so much, uh, and then they adhere to it, and then maybe they even wrap a business or their reputation around it, and then becomes very kind of ossified and difficult to change. Um, and so people become resistant to that not because not only because it's become a habit and not only because they you know their their income or reputation is tied to it and not only because, because 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 and perhaps they they stop searching where you know as as you just said and and I you know I mentioned that it's a little bit a different tone from what you said in the book but you said you know I've updated my thinking in in the interim period like I think carbohydrates fructose honey I think maybe there is more of a role than maybe I insinuated in the book and that's I think that's the way to approach this. And I'm sure that's going to endear people to to you as you move forward. So, you know, kudos for that. But uh, one of the things I wanted to bring up, you mentioned it in the book. I haven't, I've been living in Shanghai for the last 10 years, right? So big city, not very much hunting going on. Um, and, but it's, I come from a place where there's a lot of hunting. And uh, I'd like to, in, you know, from now on in my life, I'd like that to be a big part of how I obtain my food. Um, and I've always felt like a hypocrite eating a lot of meat because I love animals. I mean, I, I, just all animals, every shape and size, I'm just a, a big, softy animal lover. And, um, you know, I felt like I was outsourcing the nitty-gritty part by just taking a steak up off the, the chart in the grocery store, which is true. That's, that's what I'm doing. Um, and the, the prospect of going on a hunt um, this, this, later this month or early next month for moose and I know the prospect of lining one up in my sights and taking its life is going to be very difficult for me, and it's probably going to, you know, aff- you know, affect me pretty deeply. And but I know that that the knowledge not only of the how that's going to sustain me is part of the motivation in doing that, but I'm really looking forward to the dynamic that plays internally because I'm the type of person that will think and feel a lot about that that uh, circumstance, right? What what goes on there, and. I can't imagine a circumstance where my forcing myself to take that life in order to sustain mine won't, out of respect for the life that I've taken, won't cause me to use that opportunity I've been given uh, to be be more um, thoughtful in how I use that opportunity that's been given. And I think that that relationship is a good one. And I think it's one that we should probably respect and foster and facilitate more. And then, of course, the complete antithesis of that is the food system and the the approach to diet that we have, you know, in the quote unquote mainstream world today. And I think, you know, there's certainly lots of problems going on in the world. But I think, you know, just being separated from the reality of what allows you to sustain your life And the sacrifice that's inherent in that and the respect uh, and the gratitude that should be accompanying that, uh, I think is a huge part of this whole thing that we refer to when we talk about diet. And as you say in the book, diet's a piece. Being out in nature is a piece. Getting sunlight is a piece. Uh, Interacting with people that you love and enjoy their company is a piece. Moving the body, getting a sweat on, huffing and puffing, like that's a piece. And if you can put all this together, then you might get to an approximation of what this thing is capable of, how you're able to feel. And so I, I appreciate that you actually mentioned that in the book, uh, but I am curious as, you know, your own um, experience with that, how did you um, approach, you know, having to directly take life of an animal in order to, to sustain yourself?
1: Yeah, I think that there are very few people that hate animals. <laughs> I think that that most of us appreciate animal life and respect life in general. I also don't go in my backyard and just start chopping down trees just because I hate, just because I can, just because I want to break this tree or break this branch. I mean, I think most people walking through the forest will will correct their children if their children are just like breaking plants in half. You just understand there's life. And and sure, if there's a spider in your room, you might kill it or ask someone to kill it for you. But most of us understand that life is life. is miraculous to say the least and we don't fully understand it and none of us wants to disrespect life but my experience of hunting has been some of the most spiritual you know of moments of my life really and i've been on a few hunts i've i guess i've been on two or three hunts now and i want to do more this fall but most recently in january and when i when i was able to take that deer with my bow it was there's nothing like that and i think that though this statement may sound striking to people, I think that if more people hunted, we would be in a better spot right now. Yeah, (laughs) that's
0: what I'm saying, I think so Because
1: hunting changes something in you. And sure, you can go out and hunt and drink beer and be disrespectful of animals and use it as sport, but if more people hunted spiritually, if more people hunted intentionally is perhaps the better word, I think people would act differently toward each other. Because when you take an animal's life, and I wrote this in the book, you are immediately starkly reminded of the gift that is your own, uh, of the responsibility that you and I have to live well, because that animal has given its life for you. There's a quote that I love from the book, The Tracker, by uh, Tom Brown. And and there's a scenario in the book, he's supposedly a, a nonfiction recount of his childhood growing up in the Pine Barrens of New Jersey, being apprenticed to an Apache Indian who taught him kind of Native American ways. And he killed his first deer when he was nine or 10 with a knife and brings it back to camp and he's weeping and and this this mentor of his says, why are you crying? And he says, well, I, I, I killed this deer and he says, and the mentor says to him, the mentor's called grandfather in the book, grandfather says, in order for something to live, something else must die. That's the way of life and you have to understand that. And when you understand that that life is life and life in a deer is no different than life in the blade of a grass, it kind of makes sense. And people often Are taken aback when I when I share that quote because I think we've got this fake construct in our minds that somehow that life is different, you know, that life in a plate of grass is different than life in a cow. And well, they feel pain. Well, I don't have any idea what the experience of a plant is, life on this earth. You know, there's some there's some people who believe that plants feel pain. I think there's some good evidence that plants feel pain and that plants release, you know, things that say, hey, I'm I'm in pain right now. And so The idea, the the, sort of the framework that I exist within is by being alive, I have a gift. And it's my responsibility to use that gift as well as I can to be the best human, the kindest human, the most respectful human, to do my own self work, to do as much sharing as I can of information that may benefit people and improve their quality of life. And if that requires me to eat animals that have nutrients, then I will do that respectfully and I will be grateful for that. And one day I will go back to the earth, this body will die too, and I will be food for something else. I don't want to be buried in a in a hermetically sealed sarcophagus or coffin in the earth. I mean, I would throw my body in the ocean, let the sharks eat me. I mean, at one point, these atoms, the atoms that make me up, are not mine. They've been circulating for you know billions of years.
0: From stardust so, to stardust. Right? Yeah,
1: I'm just I'm just <laughs> renting them for a little bit, and I will go back to that Earth too. And the goal is just to 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 try and understand what we're doing on this life and in this life, on this earth, and, and to do it as well as possible. And I strongly believe that being nourished by animal meat and organs is a, is a huge piece of that. Yeah. And we can do that respectfully and understand that it's part of a cycle and it makes it even more beautiful. Like, wow, here's a gift, here's another gift, here's another gift. And when you realize how much we would have been hunting, we would have been experiencing this, what I thought, think of as a sacrament very frequently you know, this interaction. And so many indigenous cultures experience this or talk about this. Native American cultures in their literature, African cultures, just this spiritual connection with the animals and the ecosystem and they're all gifts to us. And we've been separated from that by industrial agriculture. Even if it's grass-fed and grass-finished and regenerative, we are missing what I think is one of the most profound and central experiences of being a human and that is gathering your own food, whether it's by hunting or exploring in 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 the natural world. And that... I think has led to an incredible disconnect with what we're supposed to be eating, and that's why we're in the mess we're in.
0: I couldn't agree more. And you know, throughout your journey of researching this subject matter, writing the book, having the experiences that you just alluded to, um, I, I'm fascinated by history. But I th- does does that experience and kind of feeling the uh, those uh, emotions and. Thinking back to what life must have been like for people that did that as routine, as kind of de facto, like, you know, there wasn't any choice, Um, you know, does that inform any of your ideas of like, um, how should I put this, where do you draw anything else of value from where you where your mind gets cast back to when you think of of those people that lived that way in the past? You know, you touched on a little bit just then how it was a very sacramental experience when they would go hunting and they had a greater appreciation for the natural world. But, um, you know, I, I, you make reference to uh, psychedelics in the book. You studied psychiatry. Uh, I'm very much interested in that subject matter as well. I think there's tremendous uh, benefit to be done, uh, to, to be had by the responsible use of psychedelics, but they also kind of imbue in you a, 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 a reverence for the natural world and a, a perhaps insights into the natural world. And uh, I'm just wondering, like, throughout all this, when you cast your mind back 10,000 years or earlier, you know, when there was no agriculture, when people were living like this, do you draw, you know, any philosophical insights or any kind of how to live sort of things from, from what you imagined back then?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. That's exactly where I go. So, (laughs) you know, there's this great quote from an Indiana Jones movie, and it was, if you want to be a good archaeologist, you got to spend less time in the library and more time in the field. And I think, yeah, I think it's time for me to be a better doctor, a better scientist by spending less time in the library and less time in the books and more time in the field. And, And I really, in the next year, I mean, coronavirus has thrown a wrench in this, but my hope was to spend extended amounts of time with hunter-gatherer tribes at the end of this year or early next year, and we'll see if I can make it happen. I've got a lot of friends with connections with the Hadza, their tribes, but that's where my mind goes. What else am I missing? What is it like to live that way? I've spent a lot of time in the wilderness. I'm very grateful for that time in my life. It was some of the most formative experiences that I've had, but I I do question what Chris Ryan would call the narrative of perpetual progress, I do question the somewhat insidious and pervasive notion that we're living in the best time that humans have ever enjoyed. I'm not convinced that we're happier now than we've ever been. I don't think, I mean, you and I are talking over technology and sharing this information over technology. Certainly there are benefits to technology, but I'm just not convinced that it makes us happier humans. I'm not convinced it helps us connect with people. I'm not convinced it helps us find meaning. I'm not convinced it makes us, you know, happier in that moment when we die and we move on to the next life or whatever it is. I think that it's crazy to think about how many people have gone before us. You think, wow, it's 2020. And then you think there have been people living on this earth for millions of years. Like (laughs) how many people have died? How many lives that you think of in history have gone and passed? It's just incredible to think about all these people that are gone before us and what were their lives like and how happy were they? Yeah. And you know, like you drew a real distinction, and I think that there is a distinction between the last ten to twenty thousand years of predominantly agrarian lifestyles, and then previous to that, what was like, like fifty thousand years ago or eighty thousand years ago? Were we happier? Some people believe we were. I've got to believe that that's something that we should entertain. I'm not sure how to get back there. I'm not a complete anarchist or believe in burning it all down, but. I do think it's an important question to consider. That I'm just not convinced that in this narrative of perpetual progress, I'm not convinced that we're that we're going in the right direction. In fact, I think we're going in the opposite direction, and it's gonna it's gonna continue to get worse. I think we're gonna get more separated. I think we're gonna get more unhappy. We're certainly becoming less healthy, and I am trying very hard to understand what's happened there. But there's a big part of me that that really just wishes for a different type of life in, in some ways and and wishes for a simpler life, wishes for, you know, more hunting and, and more time with community and more singing and more looking at the stars. And isn't it ironic that the things that many people enjoy today, hiking, fishing, hunting, being outside, were all we had to do before. <laughs> and we've replaced these fundamentally meaningful experiences with working in front of computers for paper money and digital binary code and ones and zeros and computers. And then in our, in our meager free time, we go out and hunt and fish and share time with people we care about. It's like, we, what the heck? There's this incredible anecdote that Chris Ryan talks about in his book, Civilized to Death. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna not recall it from memory, but I'll give you guys the sense of it. Basically, I think it happened about 100 years ago and you know, indigenous people, there were many more hunter-gatherer tribes at the intersection of Western society. And there were, I believe they were Hadza or Maasai or one of these African indigenous cultures that has a hunter-gatherer past. And they were brought to Europe or something like this and they saw how they lived and they thought, what are you guys doing? Why do you spend all your time away from people you care about? And you work how much? You know, it's just the notion that we are living better lives is just comical. It's been documented repeatedly. These hunter-gatherer tribes work 20 hours a week or less to get their food and the rest of the time and just hang out 20 hours a week. And those 20 hours are spent hiking and fishing and hunting and being in nature with people they care about and having adventures and seeing sunsets and stalking things. And those are the things we live for. You know, you or I have to hunt in hunting season, a small time of the year in a small area and these people get to do that all the time. That's all they have to do, and then they can make music or share share stories or just be in the world with their families or just relax and have a different life. And so, yeah, absolutely. I, I go places in my mind and I think, hmm, I think we I think we missed it. <laughs> and so I think you know we're forced with how to live that way in in 2020. And psychedelics certainly may be a part of that. Mm-hmm. Remembering where we've come from for people that that choose to use them, um, but that's the challenge for us. How do we I mean, because ultimately isn't that what it's about? Having the most meaningful life, finding meaning, finding mindfulness, finding purpose, finding happiness, whatever the heck that is, for lack of a less cliched term. Like, why, the, why are we living if that's not what we're doing? And so I'm not convinced we're, we're on the right path at all. And um, it's just, but for me it feels meaningful to help offer people a tool that might be unique or a different perspective of looking at human health and disease that may give them back a higher quality of life with which they can pursue those things they enjoy. But yeah, I myself am on the same path. I'm trying to get maybe a little more lost these days than, than plugged <laughs> well, in.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. I think we've gone way off the tracks. I don't think there's any going back to you know that era, um, but I think there's a way forward that's far better than the track that we're currently on. And you know, the, the, it's, it's almost ironic because um, everything you just said resonates a lot with me. And, and I think a lot of the people that listen to this show and a lot of people in the Bitcoin space and Bitcoin is ostensibly like a high technology sort of thing. So you would think they would be somewhat counter to one another. But, you know, a lot of people desire, you know, kind of, you know, Terrence McKenna used the term an archaic revival, which and by that he means, you know, bringing back some of the elements of quote unquote, archaic life into our modern lives. And it's pretty simple, right? It's being outside, it's being with people you like, engaging in meaningful work, you know, all the stuff that you just mentioned. And so I think what we need to try to do and what you're doing, and I can't thank you enough for doing so, is giving people one piece of that puzzle to say, you know, this is this is part of that puzzle. So take the knowledge and experiment for yourself, because this will help you get a step closer to being back on the right track, you know. Um I know we're over time. I want to do a couple quick ones if if you're if yeah, you're still minutes, available yeah. before before we finish, um, because I know they'll come up and people will shit on me for not hitting them. But uh, in terms of debunking in the book, uh, you know we talked about the vitamin C thing, the LDL, um, you know, is my heart going to explode on a on a meat diet? Um, the environment, and uh, cancer, which you you reference, you know, you brought up a few minutes ago. Um, if you could just quickly. A touch on those three on the carnivore diet.
1: So, just so people know, there's chapters about all of those in the book. There's thousands of words about all of those that are highly referenced in the book. Cholesterol is just the epitome of everything that's wrong with our medical paradigms. And by that I mean the LDL hypothesis, the notion that more LDL leads to atherosclerosis makes no sense intuitively. But we don't really think about things intuitively or with an engineering mindset in medicine. We just think about things from a pharmaceutical perspective. LDL is a molecule loaded into the lipoprotein that carries building blocks, cholesterol, triglycerides throughout the body. It has indispensable roles in human biochemistry and physiology. There are genetic conditions with low cholesterol formation that result in profound mental retardation sleep disturbances, diabetes, and they're rescued by giving people lots and lots of egg yolks with tons of cholesterol. So um, LDL also increases when we fast, and it's been shown to have roles in the immune system, protecting us from both gram-positive and gram-negative invaders, uh, bacteria, and, and potentially also viruses. I mean, LDL was wrapped into the whole coronavirus conversation now as well. So how anyone could believe that this molecule that's indispensable for human health would somehow be killing us makes no sense to me. There's clearly a third variable. This is the error we make in medicine repeatedly. We just want to believe there's two variables, that it's a linear relationship and that somehow X level of LDL is good, but if you exceed this threshold, it becomes atherosclerotic, which doesn't make any sense. Things don't work like that. It's not a switch. It's always a continuum. Now, whether or not LDL is involved in an atherosclerotic plaque is to be debated by at another time. But most people would agree, yeah, there's probably LDL in an atherosclerotic plaque. But that doesn't mean an LDL-caused an atherosclerotic plaque. LDL might be recruited there. It appears to be recruited. And there's a lot of things that go wrong. If you look at stratifications regarding LDL cholesterol or total cholesterol and cardiovascular disease risk, and you introduce a third variable, which gives you some sense of insulin sensitivity or metabolic health, the equation changes completely. And, And Those are the type of analyses that just made it crystal clear to me. There's a third variable we're missing, and that's insulin resistance or metabolic health. In those people who are metabolically broken, that is diabetes, prediabetes, insulin resistance, though I don't like the term insulin resistance. If you are metabolically dysfunctional, there is a relationship. There appears to be a strong correlation between LDL levels and atherosclerosis. If you are metabolically healthy, there is essentially no correlation. No association. So, to me, the simplistic notion that LDL causes atherosclerosis is inherently flawed. You can't say that. It's wrong. It's just wrong. Recently, I talked about on social media. My LDL was quite high, 533 milligrams per deciliter. Probably over 300 for two years plus, and I got a CAC scan. It was zero. So a coronary artery calcium scan. It's my N of one. I'm 43, but I have a father who's was 43 when he had his first heart attack. And so I have a strong family history of coronary disease. And most cardiologists would say, yeah, with an LDL that's that robust, you should have coronary artery disease. But I would encourage people to listen to other podcasts that I've done on cholesterol. I've done no less than seven or eight. It's quite a nuanced perspective, but I think trying to draw a causal relationship between low-density lipoprotein, an indispensable particle that carries unique building blocks for the human physiology around our body, and the development of atherosclerosis is an oversimplification that's been potentially promulgated or potentiated by statin literature and things like this. And you know, there's so many different ways to go down. But I think the the, the the evidence that LDL is causal is weak, if not completely absent. And the evidence that there's another variable there is very strong. And so, don't be insulin resistant. You need LDL in your body. You can't ever get rid of it. You should never get rid of it, but LDL isn't causing the problem. Again, that's high level. Um, cancer, there's there's no evidence that meat causes cancer. There's no evidence that red meat is harmful to humans in general. There's no interventional evidence for that. There's epidemiology, but as I describe in the book, epidemiology is wildly misleading and easily confounded mm-hmm. by the, the narrative of the culture in which you are doing the observational studies. So don't be fooled by epidemiology. Don't be fooled by observational research. So that's a really key thing. So we don't, there's no evidence that that that's the case. And you get unhealthy user bias and healthy user bias incorporated here as well. So it's it's quite nuanced, but in terms of interventional evidence for that, no. There's also no evidence that fruit and vegetables or fiber prevent cancer. That's been clearly shown in interventional trials and is often misquoted. There's no evidence that fiber or fruit and vegetables prevent constipation. They can make you get bigger poops, but they're not gonna fix constipation. They don't prevent diverticulosis. They don't. They're not necessary for a high alpha diversity in the microbiome or a healthy microbiome. We talked about that one earlier. So there's so many myths to debunk in terms of of cancer, in terms of LDL cholesterol, in terms of all of these notions around fiber and benefit and no benefit. Um, so and, and all of those are discussed in the book pretty clearly with a lot of evidence. So, yeah. but again, it's that's a whole podcast in and of itself. Is all the debunking you have to do with meat and, and why it's been incredibly vilified. Right. The the quick answer for that is just that it's epidemiology. And I, I mentioned that a moment ago. It's observational research versus interventional research. And people saying that red meat is associated with harm are, again, missing the fact there's a cultural narrative damning red meat in our country for the last 70 years based on epidemiology done by Ansel Keys and others in the 1960s, which has created the bugaboo that we're in today, which created the sort of quandary that we're in today. But if you look at Asian countries the epidemiology looks completely differently and those who eat more red meat have lower rates of cardiovascular disease the women who eat more red meat have lower rates of cancer so epidemiology tells us more about a cultural narrative than it does about the actual physiology you can test the hypotheses that you generate from epidemiology when you do that there's really not even a whole lot of mechanisms for meat to be causing cancer people say heme iron it doesn't really add up it's just there's so many it's just so many flawed arguments and Evolutionarily, it makes no sense. Why right. would a food that has unique nutrients that was clearly at the center of the formation of our large brains over the last two million years be bad for us? It doesn't make sense this it's killing us, but it made us who we are. That's dumb. <laughs> like come on guys, it's just people yeah. aren't really putting the pieces together and and the notion that we evolved big brains by eating plants is equally absurd so
0: yeah. Man, it's closing, uh, closing thoughts here now, but it's so interesting. You know, in, in the Bitcoin space, we, a lot of people study the history of money to get an appreciation for what money is and how it works and what are the attributes that allow it to work well or not well and be corrupted, et cetera. And once you get that kind of morsel of truth, you see the illusion or the delusion everywhere. And I feel like something very similar is the case with with diet. Uh, and in particular with this you know because i'm listening to you speak and i want to ask you like man how frustrating is it to just look out on the world and be like there are lies mistruths untruths misinformation uh you know uh, special interests uh, like all that kind of stuff everywhere uh, that is that is f- so far from the truth and because you know the truth or at least you believe you've 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 developed an approximation close to the truth seeking it uh, all- yeah, exactly. All that becomes clear. And like I know I, I and I, I speak for myself whether it's with diet or whether it's with money or whatever, it's disheartening, but there's the the really big thing is that there's hope, right? Because you you know, you once you know the truth or once you think you're kind of dancing around it, you're you're getting close to it, then you know that it can actually turn that kind of stuff around. It's a it's a big task. Uh, it, it'll take a lot of work, it may take some time, but you know, hopefully, we're in a scenario now with the speed of transmi- transmission of information, with the reports of more people gaining, you der- deriving benefit from, uh, you know, a diet like this, that will will get out, and people will start to question all the ridiculous dogma, whether it comes from the medical community, the 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 industrial food community, you know, well-meaning individuals all over the world that are just misinformed or ill-informed, uh, that it'll start to get out, and people will start to change and benefit from this.
1: Yeah, I think it's going to be a grassroots movement. And I think it's going to happen slowly. And then it's going to tip and be like a wildfire. It's, it's just about seeking the truth for me. And percent. I am okay with being wrong. <laughs> because if me being wrong means that we've understood something to be true, that's what we're after. Uh, obviously, I don't think I'm going to be wrong. But I would rather be wrong and have us learn something than be ossified, like you said, to be calcified, to be fossilized in a, in a dogma that's rigid. But I do think we're moving in the right direction, and I think that the sheer enormity of improvements that we're seeing in people's health speaks volumes about this. Just in the last week, Mike Tyson and Miley Cyrus were both on Joe Rogan's podcast, both talking about how vegan diets were super harmful for them. And, and a lot of people would say, well, maybe the, the health answer is in the middle somewhere, and I think, yeah, maybe. But I think for a lot of people, the plants are just harming them <laughs> and and they're missing out on the nutrients found in organs or they're missing out on the nutrients found in red meat because they're not eating red meat because they're afraid of it because of bad studies. And so I think we'll get there. And again, I'm not I'm not really interested in everyone in the world eating only animal foods, but I, I really think it would be cool during my lifetime and your lifetime if we saw a lot of people wake up to the fact they've been misled. Mm-hmm. and And- Connected with that, we saw a lot of people experience profound improvements in health, and and clarity of thought, and mood, and body composition, and just get to play and do many cool things in their life, rather than being wildly misled. Because if you you said it well, there are there are lies, lies, and damn lies today. I mean, <laughs> I, I think about it when I see people from the vegan perspective, and, and I'm thinking, wow, one of us is totally wrong. <laughs> We mm-hmm. cannot both be right. We're in this political climate in 2020 or you know, right now where it's like, well maybe this is good for some people and not, that's bullshit. Like humans are humans, there's biochemistry. We can't both be right. Either I'm right and we're right thinking about animal-based diets or the vegans are right and we're completely off our rocker and we're gonna find out. It's like show me the freaking octagon because I wanna fight for this <laughs> because I think I'm right and they both cannot coexist and I think it's really important to note that, like say, somebody's wrong. And it's okay, I I want that. We've become too soft. We've become too accepting of ideas like, maybe that works for you. Maybe that's your biotape. That's just crap. Like humans are similar. We have similar physiology between humans. Sure, there are some foods that are gonna trigger my immune system and not yours. But I think broad dietary patterns are very similar for the vast majority of humans on this planet. And it's either gonna be plant-based or it's gonna be animal-based. Or it could be somewhere in the middle, but I don't think so. I think it's that they're both too strong of an idea to really say, "Oh, maybe you should eat some plants and some animals." Maybe, but we should find out, uh, you know, if plants have a place in the human diet and if animal foods are really bad for humans, because this is going to affect the health of us and our children, our families, and there's just so many misinformed people out there spewing information that is that is harmful. I mean, yeah. just in regard to my work with with you know respect to fiber. There are doctors in the vegan space who've written basically the exact opposite of what I've written in that chapter. More fiber, more fiber, more fiber. You need plant fiber to have a healthy gut. It's like, how can this even be possible? Like, we're saying completely opposite things. Yeah. Somebody's wrong. Somebody's right.
0: Yeah, and I, I look, man, I totally agree Um that we need uh, society in general is extremely soft. And uh, what I would like to see, and I think you're right. Like, we're going to find out. We're going to find out Absolutely. who's right. But that's why it's so important that these discussions and these debates are allowed to happen in good faith. Like you said, you'll put your shit on the line. You'll say, this is me, this is what I'm about, this is the conclusion I've come to, this is my experience. I'm willing to rep this side of it because I think I'm right. And we need other people, like, fine, I don't mind if you, you do the same on the vegan side. But, you know, so often today, uh, these debates you know, are are muddied by other considerations. Like, as you, si- as you said a few minutes ago, and I totally resonate with this, truth is the only thing I care about, that's it. Like if you know if, if I'm wrong if I'm right well, I, I don't care about that I care about what the truth of any given matter is and that's all we should be heading towards and unfortunately everything is so politicized today and there's certain things you can't say and there's certain arguments you can't have and that makes it more difficult and to that end I appreciate during this crisis how you've been you know out on social media, trying to get people to think about uh, this crisis in a different way, trying to look at uh, health in a different way, trying to look at data in a different way, because we seem incapable as a global society to look at things objectively and then set a course based on that, based on uh, you know the best interpretation of objective data as we can. So I, I really appreciate you doing that. It's, um, been,
1: it's been maddening upon maddening. <laughs>
0: Paul, uh, I know I've taken up way too much of your time, man. I really appreciate this. This has been uh, super fun. Uh, Any closing remarks before we shut this thing down?
1: No. uh, People can find me at heartandsoil.co.co. All my podcasts are there. All my videos are there. All my blogs are there. You can find the desiccated organ supplements there. You can also always email me, Dr. Paul, Paul, at heartandsoil.co. If you have questions, I like interacting with people and I think that it's it's just awesome to connect with other truth seekers. And it sounds cliche, it sounds passé, but my God, if somebody's got a better way to put it, then send it to me because that's that's the most crystallized, resonant sentiment that I've found recently too. It's just, I want to know how we thrive as humans. I, I want to know that piece of truth. And I think it's super important for us to think about that and not to be sheeple not to just accept what we're told and, and to actually ask these questions. I'm just not, I'm not satisfied until we understand this. I could be working in a hospital right now as a doctor. Instead, I'm putting my neck out and getting trolled. You know, like I'm trying to share ideas that help people and I'm grateful to do it. I, I'm so stoked to do this, but there's a lot easier ways to do things than than what you and I are doing. And so hope people appreciate that. I hope it's valuable for them.
0: Yeah, well, I think it's going to be worth it for you, for us, and for everybody in the the end, man. So Absolutely. again, I, I really appreciate your efforts, and uh, you know, keep up the great work. Thanks, brother. All right, brother. Take care. Thank you. Bye bye.